Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my guest host, Stefan Allen. Hello. So this week we are discussing a new release for the first time in a while, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, a film that's being hailed as a groundbreaking work for American animation. A sequel to 2018's Into the Spider-Verse, it stars Shamik Moore and Haley Steinfeld as Miles Morales and Gwen Stacy, a pair of teen superheroes who team up with alternate versions of Spider-Man from across the multiverse. I feel like the main thing people are talking about is just how stunning this is in terms of animation. I know you loved this film. I've seen a lot of Oscar buzz already. I've seen a high volume of five-star reviews. I personally have a lot more criticisms than some people. Oh, great. Obviously not to do with the animation, which I think is just completely mind-blowing. But I think there's some dodgy writing on a thematic level. Um, Mm. But we will get into that further down the line because I think there's just so much to praise and analyze in terms of just the way this film is constructed musically and visually and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. I just really couldn't believe my luck watching this. I didn't rewatch Into the Spider-Verse because I thought I sort of wanted that experience of, oh, I miss these characters and being really excited to see them again. So I don't know if this is me misremembering, but it feels a lot more visually vibrant and varied yeah, than the first I think, one. I think they've really upgraded because the first one was already very impressive. But I also think that like probably the success of the first one gave the creators a lot more leeway to get more ambitious both from the studio and I think from the audience because American audiences are so unused to watching animated films that aren't in a very kind of restrictive subgenre of films for small children or Disney Pixar that's pretty much the only area in which that's like a mainstream thing yeah and this is a film that was like watched by kids and adults like a live action superhero movie but you know they're actually doing something with it When I went to watch this, the trailers, you know, were, were all sort of appropriate to the film in the sense that these are also trailers for child-friendly films, including animations. There's a Pixar one and a DreamWorks one. I can't remember which way around they go, but one of them is about elemental creatures like fire and water and air. And, yeah, the and... one where they're really scraping the bottom of the barrel for like <laughs> things they can do for like, we've got concepts and we've made them into cartoon characters. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> You've just helped me understand that that is Pixar. <laughs> And then there was one, a DreamWorks one, about a Kraken, who's also a teenage girl. And who knows, maybe those films are great. I only saw the trailers, but wow, just what boring but competent animation. <laughs> just films have looked like that for so long now. And then you get to this, and it's just so fresh. And it's, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about more specifics, but even at its most normal, this film is so beautiful. Even when we're in... When we're in Miles's world, it looks much like the first film did. And even that is just so gorgeous and just so nice to look at. And then when we start hopping about and and we see other worlds and we see how they look and they all have their own like artistic sort of aesthetic. And oh, yeah, it's just yeah, beautiful. Yeah, I mean, they have this incredibly high level of complex visual world building and emotive characterization that's like taking place visually. But also the level of detail, obviously it's like this incredibly maximalist style, but it always draws the eye to where it should be on the screen, which is very, you know, it it obviously that's the animator's job, but they're doing it very well. And I've definitely seen like people remark, including an interview with the directors, just saying you can pause it on basically any frame of the movie and it looks 
incredible just like the framing the color palette the contrast is just like it looks amazing and it looks like a panel from a comic ah. whereas you you pause an mcu film on any frame and it almost always is going to look like dog shit <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's like it just makes it so funny to me that one of the first reactions from the industry to the first movie after it came out in 2018 because obviously this film had a huge impact was not we need to try and make films that look better <laughs> or are engaging more with the visual elements of comic books. Yeah. Instead, it was Marvel and Disney being like, we have to do our own Spider-Verse team up. Yeah. yeah. And like, people were fucking trying to campaign for that movie to get an Oscar. And I was just like, that film, while I pretty much enjoyed it and it was pleasant to see the completely blatant fan service of three Spider-Mans hanging out. It was bad. Like, it, it was the same as every other recent MCU film in yeah. that there was nothing happening on a visual level and it was very boilerplate superhero storytelling. However, before we kind of go into that stuff, I thought I should kind of introduce the directors and stuff. Oh, yes. So, interestingly, because it's so long since we watched the first film and indeed reviewed it. There is a glowing review from Morgan and I in a podcast episode from 2018. I kind of forgotten who the directors were. Different directors on this movie than the first one, which kind of surprised me a little. So there's three filmmakers, which is very unusual to get three directors. It's more normal in an animated film, I think. It makes more sense in animation because it's not a situation where you have, you know, one main director directing a bunch of stuff on set and then an assistant director doing pickups elsewhere. It's a very complex creative process where it's all just kind of like managing zillions and zillions of animators working in offices and various places and like recording audio and, comp and composing music and stuff. So the directors are Joaquim Dos Santos, Kemp Powers and Justin K. Thompson. So uh, Dos Santos was a story artist. So he kind of describes himself more as like a visual storyteller who's really interested in camera work and kind of framing shots and stuff. There is an interview in Collider that I will link to that was really interesting, like a long, in-depth interview with all three of them. Justin K. Thompson was a production designer on the previous film, so I think this is his first time directing an animated feature. And Kemp Powers was more kind of in the zone of vocal performance direction and editing. He is a playwright, so he wrote the play One Night in Miami, which was then adapted into a live-action film directed by Regina King, which I would describe as a pretty good film. But yeah, that's like an interesting person to bring into this. And I think it's because he worked on Soul, the Disney movie. So he was like the first black director on a Disney animated film. Oh, wow. <laughs> In like the 21st century, that's... just Disney. God, gotta love him. Outrageous. Uh, but yeah, that's the three kind of main directors. And obviously you've got like this massive ensemble cast, some of whom are returning from the first film. And then they're adding various other people. I think the most prominent ones would be Jason Schwartzman is playing the villain The Spot who sort of initially seems like he's not going to be a big deal and then ends up being this sort of multiverse destroying apocalypse creature. Uh, Issa Rae voicing a new version of Jessica Drew Spider-Woman um, who is heavily pregnant when they meet her and also you've got Daniel Kaluuya as Spider-Punk, Karen Sony as the Spider-Man India character Pavita Prabhakar and also Oscar Isaac as Miguel O'Hara the Spider-Man 2099 character who's kind of the head of Spider Society, which is this multiversal law enforcement agency populated by zillions and zillions of Spider-Men, all of whom come from their own universes with their own animation styles, their own sub-genres. So it's like a really interesting creative challenge and way to sort of interact with the way that 
comics publishing functions. And obviously for those who are not like plugged into the superhero industrial complex, this is separate from the MCU. The Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse franchise is essentially its own thing. Um, It's not really attached to any other franchises. It is produced by Sony, which owns the rights to Spider-Man and Spider-Man spin-off characters, which is why they are sort of desperately as a studio trying to like release as many Marvel films as they can without being attached to the main Marvel franchise. And God love them. I hope they keep making Venom films forever, but most of all of those films have not been very good so far. Yeah. So congrats to the animated <laughs> side. <laughs> I think it is hard to talk about this film without talking about what is happening metatextually in the sense that... The conversation around who owns what and the tension between those things is quite a big deal, I think. It's obviously incredibly boring if you're not into Marvel movies. And if you watch this and love it, which, you know, why wouldn't you? Like, Or at least why wouldn't you find it, you know, a, a, like a real breath of fresh air in the superhero genre? can be very boring to then go, okay, now let's analyse where it all fits in. But there has always been this tension where Sony owns the rights to Spider-Man. But they have struggled over the years, I would say, to consistently produce films that have attracted the same level of interest as MCU films. Therefore, it's sort of hard not to see that awareness in these Spider-Man films, where we are talking about multiverse stuff. I don't want to have to talk about any of the terrible multiverse movies that were inspired by... It's it's fine. We can we can talk about the multiverse as a concept later on, because yeah. I have a lot of thoughts on how that's been like a recent trend in superhero films and how it kind of works directly and metaphorically. Yeah. I mean, what I would say about these films, the Spider-Verse movies, is that they are infinitely more successful as Spider-Man adaptations than the MCU Tom Holland Spider-Man movies, which yeah. like I have more or less enjoyed. But first of all, it's really exciting that this really creatively ambitious animated franchise and Miles Morales as a character are, for all intents and purposes, like the new Spider-Man that young people actually identify with and are compelled by. Spider-Man is probably the biggest brand for Marvel, full stop. And I've always found it sort of morbidly fascinating that in the MCU, Peter Parker has essentially become suborned to Tony Stark because Tony Stark is the Disney character. And like, it's almost like Disney is doing this like in-universe power play over the fact they have all these fucking contract negotiations with Sony to include Spider-Man in the MCU because they've got him in this sort of perpetually childlike state where he is the intern to Tony Stark and using all this Tony Stark like technology they also erased working class roots which are this really key part of his background in the comics and they change his personality to be a lot more sort of passive because in the comics peter parker is sexy he's often kind of messy and disastrous which is something you see in peter b parker in this franchise and he's a lot wittier whereas that's really not what you see in the mcu and the mcu also basically steals a lot of stuff from Miles Morales in the comics. So like they give Peter this new friend who is like blatantly just a copy of Miles's friend from the comics. They put him in this tech school in New York. So it's like they've stolen that stuff, which meant that like Sony couldn't use those elements in the Miles Morales film in the same way. <laughs> and it's just like so fucking messy. Yeah. But this movie is actually engaging with all those 
classic Spider-Man themes in like a fresh way and also is like talking about race a lot more in ways that are you know in some ways not very well handled but that also kind of goes back to the original Miles Morales comics which are kind of problematic because the writer who is a white guy Brian Michael Bendis heavily criticized in many elements for those early Miles Morales comics which are really great in some ways and have like amazing art by Sarah Pacelli which I think is kind of a central reason why this character is so successful but like it's nice to see that character move into different hands in more recent years. <laughs> yes, definitely. And th- and this is, uh, you know, there's such a long history in Marvel Comics and comics in general of uh, uh, of well-meaning white men <laughs> just sort of going, okay, this should be more diverse. I'll make a character. And therefore that character just does not feel very authentic. There's so many examples in those comics, like really cringeworthy slang that like no young person would ever use. Yeah. Also, crucially, the fact that Miles's dad is named Jefferson Davis, the same name as a Confederate president, <laughs> and they had to like mess around with the surnames and be like, "Oh, his surname's his surname is Morales after his mother," because otherwise you'd end up with a guy named Miles Davis, which um, you can't have either. And it's just like, please stop naming characters. <laughs> like, <laughs> just and it's like in this movie, people kind of pointed out that Jefferson, the dad, has like swapped names now, so now he has taken his wife's name entirely and is now Jefferson Morales, and it's like, yeah. Yeah, that's a it's a good workaround here. Yeah, nice. <laughs> anyway, to get out of the weeds of all that kind of lore bullshit, let's talk about the animation because there's so much to talk about. All these different styles. Like in this one, Miles goes to a lot more universes. Like I guess I should give a bit more of an intro to the plot, which is that we're two years on for the from the first film, and Miles has been separate from like his friend slash love interest that whole time because they're from different universes. So he really misses her and he's kind of doing the classic Spider-Man thing of trying to balance his spider duties with high school and having to lie to his parents a lot. And Gwen Stacy is basically doing the same thing with her much stricter cop dad, Captain Stacy, in her universe. And what happens is that Spider-Woman Gwen's secret identity is accused of killing her version of Peter Parker because she's like on the scene when Peter dies. So her father is essentially on a manhunt for her. And he eventually unmasks her and tries to arrest her. And she ends up escaping through an interdimensional portal because she's been in the middle of this like battle with an interdimensional creature. So she ends up joining the Spider Society, which is this multidimensional Spider-Man law enforcement agency, as I said, led by Miguel O'Hara. And she gets sent on a mission to Miles' universe. They meet up, they have a sweet little encounter. And Miles is, of course, desperate to join her. Like, he wants to go and travel across the multiverse again. And he doesn't really understand why he's not allowed to. And this leads him into this situation where he is visiting other universes with the Spider Society. And so we see, like, all these different places. So, like you said, like, Miles' universe is kind of the most standard one, because that's, like, the home universe of the franchise. Um, And then you've got like Gwen's universe. We've also got one which is like the Spider Society universe, which has got this retro futuristic kind of look, which is inspired by the sci-fi concept artist Sid Mead. Gwen's universe. So I love Gwen's universe, which is like watercolor based. Sort of the idea is that the entire sort of look changes according to the mood that Gwen is in. Um, there's an absolutely gorgeous bit where, you know, a very, very sort of emotionally heightened scene where she's, you know, quite upset. The watercolours seem to cry in the background. I'm remembering this because it's so striking. There's the spider punk, really evocative of 
not just like 80s punk rock, you know, so, so he's like a British punk rocker, so it's very like Sex Pistols aesthetic. But it also reminds me of like the intro to Nevermind the Buzzcocks. It's this kind of more jagged, lower frame rate. I think I read that somewhere that... If you see like a still image from it, it's like a fanzine. It's like hand cut newspaper zine which is kind of what you see from a sex pistols album cover or zine art from that period and then like different parts of his body are animated at different frame rates so it's like he's visually rebelling against his surroundings oh that's fun yeah that's nice the spot himself has this kind of fluid strange sketchy thing he looks unfinished you know you can sort of i think you can see the pencil marks you know, the idea being that the artist has, like, drawn some circles for a head and stuff, and you can sort of still see those marks in him. The really obvious one I'm forgetting here is is the Indian Spider-Man, which, again, I, th- I think this is based on the artwork of the comic as well, so there was a... Uh... I've not read that comic. They definitely redesigned the character quite a lot. Okay. I love the animation style in this. I think the location's called Mumbatton, so it's like a Mumbai-New uh, York crossover location. Yeah. And it's got this art style that's partially inspired by vintage 1970s comics, which I'm not like an expert in this, but I think that the color palette has got this sort of um, faded newspaper ink because there's certain color palettes that are just basically reliant on the type of paper and ink that are used. And when I read that, I was like, oh yeah, this does kind of look like a style of poster and comic book art that like I would associate with India and is like slightly different from the three color printing you'd get from like 1940s Superman or something. Yeah, that's really um, cool. which is really interesting. And like the character also has this martial arts style, which is this like Corral and martial arts style they research that's been around for like 2000 years. And it's like, yeah, it's what I like to see separate fighting styles for each character, which is something you see very effectively done in Avatar The Last Airbender. One of the directors on this is an Avatar guy. So Joaquim Dos Santos did Avatar The Last Airbender and Legend of Korra. So that absolutely tracks for me. Yeah, that makes sense. That's it. It's it's so action heavy, this film. There are some quieter moments of, you know, like characters talking, but but those, even those ones are sort of extremely dynamic. So it's it really is a film that just sort of flows from one moment to the next. Loads and loads of just movement. The different art styles helps keep that fresh every time. It's not as exhausting as it could be, I think, because you're there's constantly like a, a new thing to look at. I mean, it's so much more engaging. I watch so many blockbusters for work. Now probably only about like slightly over half all the superhero films, but that's still like a fucking lot. Like I, I reviewed The Flash this week, which is by coincidence essentially the same plot as this film. Oh. Um, it's very funny that it got delayed until slightly <laughs> after the film that it's basically the same as. Um, but this movie is 140 minutes long across the Spider-Verse, which is 20 minutes, 25 minutes longer than the first film. And it's very long for an American animated film, but it's about standard for a superhero blockbuster. Yeah. And what I found is that it is just infinitely more engaging because as you said, there's this like fluidity to the action, but it's a lot better paced than what you'd see in an MCU film where you have this sort of transitions between extended action sequences that last 15 minutes and aren't very interesting. And then like a downtime sequence, a comedy sequence, an exposition sequence. And like this does have a couple of emotional downtime sequences and exposition sequences because like that's how storytelling works in this type of movie but because the story is like so heavily visual and because of the way it's edited 
it's far harder to get bored and there is also a lot more going on intellectually like for your mind to catch on to and appreciate either like subconsciously or consciously one of the ways i think this just feels so much more modern than other superhero films is the the style of editing both like in the music and visually feels a lot more clued into the sort of tiktok generation if you get me yeah where it's like it understands that you can have these really fast cuts and a lot of visual humor that's going on that isn't like traditional visual humor but it's more to do with editing and that sort of thing it's kind of hard to explain i don't know if i'm explaining this very well but like it seems like something that is the extremely accomplished expensive version of what a 14 year old might be doing on tiktok or other platforms like that or with like gif art yeah there is like one mini sequence in this the lego sequence where they go to the lego spider-man universe which was literally animated by a spider-man film who made lego parody trailers for the first movie oh who's like wow. 14 oh that's brilliant that's so good because my observation of that lego sequence was like i love how very sort of stop motion it was you know like um I'm really glad it didn't look like the Lego movie. It was a little bit simpler and so really spoke to me more of Lego. But if that is because it was it was made by... Yes, it was animated by a teenager. A teenager. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. But brilliant. I, th- I think so much of the problem with with films that are this expensive is that by the time you are trusted with this level of budget... People tend to give those things to safe pairs of hands. It, it's so rare to see something especially experimental or or indeed rough and ready because you also have to defend the money that you spent. So I feel like you don't really get to see something that is, you know, and, and it's a very short sequence, the Lego sequence. Obviously, the rest of it looks extremely lavish, but it's nice that it gets to look like very straightforward stop motion. I mean, reading interviews with the director's I have so much more respect for them than I do for the Marvel MCU directors. But also, it just seems like they are given far, far more creative freedom. Yeah. Which I imagine is like partially due to the success of the first film. But one of the things I've noticed as someone who's been covering Marvel in depth for like years and years and years is that the people who work within the Marvel movie franchise often like during the promo tours they will single out particular movies they were inspired by yeah and for the most part that is just like not visible on screen you can kind of see it in captain america the winter soldier which is like one of the best films in the mcu which is like partially inspired by 1970s paranoia thrillers something morgan and i have discussed on our episode about that and other paranoia thrillers but for the most part you'll see a director be like, oh, such and such a movie was like such a heavy influence on me. And what it will actually translate to is there's one scene which is like a direct homage and then nothing else. Like, because these films aren't doing anything visually and they have no kind of spiritual connection to the past. They're in this sort of siloed off area of modern filmmaking where everything is just filmed in a studio backlot with bad lighting and it has a very formulaic narrative style. And with this, when I look at the influences that the directors are discussing... It's such an interesting and diverse list. (laughs) Like the villain that Gwen fights at the beginning, who's from an alternate dimension, he is a version of the vulture who is 
meant to be like a renaissance Leonardo da Vinci villain. So he's got this like silly Italian accent. He's accompanied by music, which is a combination of like an opera singer and glitched medieval instrumentation. Um, The composer is Daniel Pemberton. I think we'll talk about him a bit later. But he's drawn in this kind of sepia style that's very scribbly and looks like a massive contrast to the blue-pink watercolours. And also, there's this New York Times listicle article, which I'll link to in the show notes, which is kind of talking about all the different influences. And they're saying, oh yeah, he was partially inspired by Royal Deluxe, which is a street theatre company based in Nantes, France, that specialises in large-scale marionettes. And it's like, sure. (laughs) I mean... I've actually seen gifts of those guys. Like when I Googled it, I was like, oh, I recognize this. And yeah, he was. There's a sequence that was inspired by Disney's 1950 movie Cinderella, the way that her background kind of changes color. Hilariously, the Miguel O'Hara costume was like partially inspired by, they did a bunch of research into NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory's research into like high-tech fabrics and stuff, which is one of those things where I'm like, okay, well, now you're getting silly, but I'll accept it. (laughs) That's the thing, isn't it? Whenever there's a level of detail like this in films, you always look into it, and there will always be examples that just make you roll your eyes. But <laughs> the the fact that they are like that is why all of this is like this. Yeah, and just like the fact that they're actually allowing the concept artists to run free and wild and really have these extremely specific locations that look like each one is an individual film of itself, which is very much how comics work. Yeah where each comic has a different art style, often a very different emotional and comedic tone, which is something they do far more on a character basis. So like in the first movie, Spider-Man Noir, voiced by Nick Cage, you know, his thought processes and vocal style and body language are rooted in a parody of noir comics, which means that he is literally thinking differently from the way Miles works, because Miles and Gwen are both in contemporary teen coming-of-age stories and are far more straightforward. And then, you know, in this one, Miguel O'Hara is this sort of futuristic, dystopian, angsty character. And then all of the background Spider-Men are little parodies and, like, Easter egg callbacks to different eras of the comics and animation, which feels like an actually good use of Easter eggs, which are, as a concept, something I find extremely tiresome at this juncture. But like, because they're not a load-bearing element of of the story, it's more just like, here's this fun garnish on top of a more meaningful story in the middle. I saw a YouTuber talk about about seeing this film with, and it would have been like, you know, a very early showing, which meant it was absolutely full of hardcore Spider-Man fans who would just spend so much time like shouting out the names of, of like background characters that it really like affected his enjoyment of the film. I'm very glad that I watched this with a sort of much more normal audience. There were definitely people with Klingon t-shirts uh, like queuing up to see it, but you know, it was a very well-behaved cinema audience. Yeah, I I went to see it like a chic and beautiful young lady by myself on late at Saturday night. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like, I mean, I love Spider-Man. I love Spider-Man comics. You know, like, I'm I'm definitely a fan of it, but I like it because it is often really good. (laughs) You know, I don't like it in terms of, oh, it's so great that I've got this brain full of all these characters and I can pattern match. Like, it's not really what it's about. Like, you know, I like that some of the background Spider-Mans are familiar, but I also like that loads of them are just, you know, invented for this film. The wide range of different Spider-People that we, we see 
Yeah, like I, I agree that it's a good use of Easter eggs. It implies that there are even more amazing versions of Spider-Man than the than the ones we already have. You know, if it was just the if it, if it was just characters that we'd sort of recognized from comics miniseries, that would make it feel very small. I think. Whereas you know, and it's it, you know, it's also delivering just really exciting versions. Like you know, even Jess Drew. You know, there there is a pregnant Jessica Drew miniseries that I'm assuming was the inspiration for Jess Drew being pregnant in this. But she's a very different character. She looks different. She has a different personality. So she still feels incredibly fresh and new. So, like, obviously it was inevitable that all of the big superhero movie franchises were going to lean into the concept of the multiverse because that means that you can expand the cast and it already is extant in the comics. But So far, this franchise is the only one that's done it in an interesting way. I wrote this article the other day that was kind of talking about how all of the upcoming multiverse movies like The Flash and the current phase of the MCU are just going to look so laborious compared to this because Into the Spider-Verse literally just introduced a cast of characters the audience hadn't seen before. Like it was just like, here they all are. They're all from different universes. There's no baggage. We don't need to know any lore They just come from different universes and that was the function of the story. They weren't using the multiverse as a way to expand a pre-existing franchise. And also it wasn't like, here's a cameo from someone you recognize elsewhere that's based on nostalgia. It was, here is Spider-Gwen who has a relationship you're going to be interested in with Miles Morales, two characters you may not have heard of. And then after this, the MCU was like, we're going to do our own Spider-Man crossover movie. And its entire appeal hinges on the idea of like, resurrecting these nostalgic faves from other franchises and creating a crossover event in the style of like bad comic book crossovers which is like interrupting other characters ongoing arcs in the main storyline in order to try and sell more comics by doing a crossover with other stuff that isn't necessarily relevant (laughs) and then when you go to like Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, not a good movie, obviously. They're like fucking throwing all these little weird cameos in. You know, you've got John Krasinski as Reed Richards. You've got these alternate versions of characters in the MCU, but it's like they're just there as Easter eggs and the central plot isn't as interesting. And like with The Flash, which ethically speaking, I obviously disapprove of the fact that they are promoting this movie because it's like an Ezra Miller joint and that's bad. (laughs) It was actually a lot more entertaining than I was expecting. I did have a fun time, not a masterpiece. But a lot of the multiverse stuff in that is just like, isn't it exciting that we've managed to persuade Michael Keaton to be in this Flash movie? And it's like, yes, I like Michael Keaton, but there's no meat on this. You know, there's no real thought on how to develop this character in an interesting way, or tell a story that's particularly compelling or original. And As I said earlier, it's a similar plot to Across the Spider-Verse in that both of them, they're engaging with this sort of meta-commentary on the concept of superhero origin stories being based in trauma. So like The Flash is completely changed by the death of his mother and the imprisonment of his father. And that means that he like decides to turn back time and see if he can save his mother and therefore changes like the course of history and splits off into like a different multiversal timeline. And it creates this clash between universes as we see in comic book events in DC and Marvel comics, which are also used as a way to sort of 
explain the inconsistencies in canon. Because the purpose of the multiverse is like, here's a sci-fi timey-wimey explanation for why all of our timelines make no sense because they've been written by 50 writers over the course of 50 years. And in this one, it's like a more explicitly self-referential commentary on the genre where Miles, once he is like properly introduced to the spider society, initially he is like, oh, I really want to join these guys. But then when he goes to one of the universes and interrupts another Spider-Man's origin story by basically making it happier and saving someone's life, saving that character's life interrupts what the Spider Society describes as a canon event, which is like a crucial event that can't be interrupted, which is a familiar topic from time travel cinema in general. And we then learn that the Spider Society's real purpose is to just like make sure that canon events go on as normal which is also what we see in the TV show Loki by the oh, MCU. Yeah. Because there's all these fucking films that are like dealing with the same stuff. And I feel like this movie deals with it in a lighter way. But because we're now like in the midst of all this self-referential multiverse storytelling, I'm almost like already tired of it. And by the time the next one comes out in 2024, I think I'm going to be even more tired of it. But I think you had like a more positive take on the way this is like so kind of comics aware and genre savvy um aha you think that because i summed up my position in a morally neutral way i actually kind of dislike it i think but i think it's like I th- <laughs> it's well done but i think it's annoying i don't like i don't think it is a valid it's not an especially interesting thing to see examined in a movie i think to me like the most boring scene in the movie is when miguel o'hara does this big exposition sequence which also like is the one point where like the cameos start to get a bit overbearing because there's all these shots from other spider-man franchises including the live action ones where they're like okay well all of these characters have to go through the experience of a police captain close to them dying and then miles realizes this means that his father might be about to die so he is put into opposition against people he thought were his allies and he like tries to get back to his own universe to save his father but the deconstruction of the superhero genre is something that's been happening for decades and this is like a slightly newer version that's currently on trend also last year's best picture winner was like a multiverse maximalist self-referential movie like everything everywhere all at once it's something that's in the public mindset right now but all of the stuff that's just like a more personal story in the movie is so much more compelling. 100%. You're emotionally engaged with Miles, but it's like once you get into all this like lore stuff to do with metatextual commentary, I'm just like, please stop. <laughs> Here's something I think. And actually, I wonder, I'd be interested in your perspective on this because I think historically, you know, like I love a lot of things that are like big decade-spanning franchises. You know, I'm a big Doctor Who fan. I am a big Marvel Comics guy. Like, I am enmeshed in a lot of fandoms online that are absolutely obsessed with canon discussions. And my perspective on it is that they absolutely poison fan discourse. The obsession with not just continuity, continuity's fine, but the idea of, like, fixed continuity, these these canon proclamations, which specific Star Wars books count and which ones don't, is something... Like, I can't believe fans allow the creators of properties to get away with this. You know, if you're Gene Roddenberry and you claim, oh, actually, the animated series of Star Trek doesn't count anymore, why should we care? Why should we even listen? Like, it doesn't matter. Like, it's all stories. 
it's because people have been brain poisoned by capitalism. It's like a corporation has told you which story is real and you don't have like the flexibility to just be like, I disagree. It's a story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and that's the thing. Like it can be helpful when watching a new film to know, you know, which past stories the creator is drawing on. It's helpful when you watch Across the Spider-Verse to know that Into the Spider-Verse is relevant and applies. Other Spider-Man movies do not. But all that, you know, that that's because it helps your understanding. Whereas so often discussions around canon hinders understanding. There's a story that I remember a friend of mine wrote an essay about, oh, probably about 12 years ago now, about issue 666 of Batman comics. Because the idea is that issue 666, I haven't read it, but I gather that it's sort of a dreamlike alternate future or what if like a flash forward and it deals with batman's son potentially losing his soul to a demon so it's almost like a, like a premonition like foreshadowing and then issue 667 onwards we're back to the normal story but as a reader you go oh okay we know what the stakes are now the stakes are the soul of damian wayne himself but there would be people online going oh but issue 666 isn't canon which yeah, DC has a canon of comics and 666 isn't in it. You know, it is set outside of their normal continuity. They don't count it. But, you know, that, like it's so obvious if you read it that it's irrelevant whether this stuff really happened or not. That is not the level on which the writer is telling a story. You know, it's like saying, oh, a dream never happened and therefore the bit in Empire Strikes Back where Luke Skywalker sees his own father, that's not canon, that's not real, so we can just ignore it and not engage with that as readers of that movie. I have long beef with the concept of canons and Marvel is just terrible at this because Marvel have always had, you know, an official Marvel canon of comics, which comics count and which ones don't. And that seems to really have bled into the MCU as well. You know, you've got people online asking whether they should bother watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. because, like, I don't know if it's canon or not. And, like, you shouldn't not watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. because it's because it's not canon. You should not watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. because it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying they're fucking waiting for you to, like, land that punchline <laughs> like a slow-moving jet, like... <laughs> He's a stand-up comic. (laughs) (laughs) So I have very, very mixed feelings on this film going after that stuff because I think lampooning canon culture and this obsession with which bits count and... uh, So something I do kind of like is I like that canon events have numbers and the numbers correspond to where those things happened in the original Amazing Spider-Man comics. Because those are things that hardcore fans remember. You know, people know that issue 300 of Spider-Man is the one that introduces uh, Venom and whatever. You know, people have the... Like, you remember those numbers. And so I like that as, like, a way of going, you know, these are the fundamental pillars of Spider-Man's life. You know, he always loses his uncle. He always loses... I like, I, you know, I like it how it affects Gwen Stacy. I'm going to talk very briefly about Deadpool 2 here. So Deadpool's girlfriend is killed early on in Deadpool 2, right? Like, that's the inciting incident of that film. And that film is full of, like, specific references to comics stuff, because it's Deadpool. He's the self-aware guy who makes jokes about comics. And so there's jokes about, like, the artist Rob Liefeld being unable to draw feet, you know, really specific things about specific artists. 
But then you're watching this movie going, okay, well, this is engaging with the trope of women in refrigerators. You know, that famous, uh, is it Gail Simone who wrote that article that was like... Yeah. I mean, why am I explaining this? Literally everyone listening to this podcast knows what fridging is. (laughs) Um, But the problem is that the people making Deadpool didn't. You know, a journalist asked them, well, was this a conscious attempt at, you know, subverting or exploring women in refrigerators? And they were like, what's that? (laughs) They hadn't heard of it. Yeah, I remember that. I was just like, wow, you guys truly are plugged into one specific heavily gendered side of comic books. Yeah, and so the tension for me in Across the Spider-Verse is, are these like... Deadpool people, do they know all the numbers, but actually they have no further criticism? Or are they using this stuff in order to serve that purpose? Because if the point you're making is, you know, Gwen Stacy is fridged in almost every version of the Gwen Stacy story that has ever been told, what do we do with that? And the comics have an answer, which is Spider-Gwen. You know, Spider-Gwen in comics is engaging with, you know, what happens when you take a fridged woman and make her the the protagonist of your story. Is the film doing that? Or is the film just adapting the Gwen Stacy comics? I'm a bit nervous. I don't know if I trust them yet to get it right in terms of what happens when you contrast you know, an established body of work that fans really care about with, yeah, what happens when loads of stuff in those comics are really ugly? I think the death of Gwen Stacy is bad. I just think it's bad. That Like, it's, it's not a thing that should have happened. It's, it's... Well, I, I don't think it's not a thing that should have happened. I'm not interested in, like, striking things from the record. But the idea of holding it up in reverence and going, oh, what, what a great thing uh, when Peter Parker's girlfriend was murdered by a, by a supervillain. Like... You know, I'm not saying you can't have death in comics, but it is a very classic fridging. And I just, I hope that is a thing that the next film gets right, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, as a standalone movie, I don't think this film is actually doing anything very interesting with that question of like, oh, does someone have to die for me to have the origin story? It's like, wow. But I mean, this is actually a great segue for the two kind of political topics I was interested in in this film. One sort of neutral, one I have a lot of criticisms about. <laughs> the first of which is Gwen Stacy's role as like a trans allegory. Was this something you picked up on when you were watching? It was in my head in the sense that, you know, I have lots of trans friends. I'm very plugged into current like trans conversation pieces. and But I didn't feel that those joined up in this film at all. Like I, th- I think I yeah. was bringing that. <laughs> Because, like, I hadn't read anything about this beforehand. I'd basically avoided coverage. But, like, months ago, one of the trailers features this, like, blink and you'd miss it shot of Gwen having a Protect Trans Kids poster in the background for a bedroom. So, like, Ah. I saw people tweeting about that in, like, April. Yeah. But I forgot about it because I was just like, this is the sort of vague gesture of support that like blockbuster filmmakers make when they can't say anything more explicit. So I was like, well, sure, if you like that, whatever. But then when I watched the film... Within like the first sequence, because the first sequence is dedicated to Gwen, I was like, wow, this to me felt like a very explicit trans allegory. And then like after I watched the film and I went online, I discovered that obviously many other people have had that same experience and have written about it. Like I wound up writing an article about it, not just sort of explaining it, but kind of talking about the idea of this kind of allegorical role and its relationship to both the way people argue about canon and the way people argue about representation politics, because for kind of those who aren't familiar with this interpretation of like Gwen's role, it's kind of a combination of her storyline, which is about her hiding her identity from her father, who is a rather strict and implicitly conservative cop. 
and also the color palette of her universe, which is like pink, purple, and blue and white. And obviously the trans flag is like pink, blue, and white. And there's shots of her a lot of the time that look like they are essentially just the trans flag. In obviously like a more like mainstream reading, it just functions perfectly well. It's like here, it's like her emotional mood ring color palette, which is how the directors talk about it. But the way that the film discusses her secret identity issues is kind of different from Miles because there's definitely a few scenes with like Miles keeping secrets from his parents where it kind of seems like it might be leading into a punchline where his parents assume that he's going to come out as gay but isn't sort of thing but they thankfully avoid that joke which is a bit corny but like the tone of Gwen Stacy's relationship with her father is much more fraught and she's really keeping a secret about herself and when that secret is unveiled her father tries to arrest her And like, obviously there's like problematic undertones to that in like various different ways. People have different interpretations of like the way her father's functioning kind of literally and allegorically because some people think that her dad is wearing like a trans pride pin on his police uniform, but it kind of looks like that isn't actually the case. It's a medal and because like the colors of that color palette universe are just making it look like he's wearing this trans pride pin. So it's like, you could either interpret him as like an ally who is subtextually rejecting her as part of the subtextual allegory, or you can just be like, well, this is like a transphobia allegory, you know? So it's the problem with allegorical storytelling is like, it always gets tangled up in the stuff that's literal. And also a lot of the more toxic arguments about this online are already people being like, well, here's proof that she's trans and kind of talking about her character design and all the allegorical stuff. Or people being like transphobically trying to prove that she's not trans and be like, well, in the comics, she's always been cisgender and like, you can't say this. But it's like an allegory by definition has nothing to do with what we think of as like direct representation because obviously they're not saying anything directly. And also it has nothing to do with canon because it is inherently up to the reader's and viewer's interpretation and is ambiguous. And one of the things that a lot of people kind of can't fully grasp, I think, is the fact that a lot of queer coded characters historically are coded because the people who are telling those stories are censored. Yeah. And in a movie of this type, there is literally zero chance of a mainstream blockbuster having a trans protagonist because pop culture is so virulently transphobic. But I think the creators of this movie did put this stuff in intentionally, especially when you couple it with the fact that there is literally a trans rights poster on this character's wall, you know? Yeah. So it is there for people to pick up on. And it kind of, the example I put like in the article I wrote about this was, you know, Star Trek has this long history of very obvious allegorical storytelling. Like in the 60s, they had stories about racism and civil rights that were like not direct because you weren't allowed to do that but it's clear what they're talking about in the 90s they have characters who are clearly talking about gender identity and homophobia and like queer love that stuff is playing out in the 90s in ways that are not precisely the same as a character coming out as trans or gay but it's in that zone and you can tell what they're talking about and i found it very telling that this movie literally opens with a shot of the Comics Code Authority badge, Mm. which is kind of treated as this fun little, oh, welcome to comics, very genre savvy. But for those who aren't aware, the Comics Code Authority was kind of like the Hayes Code for movies. It was a a set of censorship regulations in American comics publishing, which lasted from the 50s through to about the 90s. And it happened due to, predictably, a conservative backlash against what was seen as stuff that was unsuitable for kids 
or, you know, vulnerable people with soft brains like women. So it was like, we don't want violence. We don't want sex. We don't want stuff that's, you know, too politically liberal. In the 1950s, it was obviously extremely racist. So like there was a lot of kind of censorship of positive depictions of black characters, that sort of thing. Lots of censorship of horror because there was a lot of concern about like children reading horror books. So it was just basically a combination of just like straightforward. We don't want kids looking at stuff that's traumatic and also the classic conservative censorship. And that governed American comics for decades. And when you look at those guidelines, I would say that with the exception of the fact that Into the Spider-Verse and Across the Spider-Verse have a very racially diverse cast, these movies completely kowtow to all of the comics code regulations. They are very anti-crime. They are pretty much pro-cop. There's no serious violence or sex, which is like what you'd expect from PG movie and it's not something I'm complaining about. And also there's no like explicitly queer or trans characters in the main cast, which is something that is the most mainstream and discussed theme of contemporary pop culture censorship. And like, we don't necessarily talk about it as explicit censorship. It's like self-censorship by the studios who don't want to anger conservative groups and they want to be as quote unquote mainstream and as accessible as possible. So all of these studios at the moment are in this tug of war between trying to seem inclusive and diverse in many cases like this movie genuinely having like a really diverse and well-represented ensemble cast but also there are particular groups that are excluded because like that's a step too far for mainstream pop culture yeah it's an incredibly frustrating thing and you know it's something i see an awful lot i'm bisexual i spend a lot of time talking with like other queer cinema fans and and superhero nerds it's incredibly frustrating to see people you know lapping up the crumbs of like official queer representation when it's not good enough it just isn't good enough and i'm not saying you can't engage with these things of course you can like if you love superhero movies great but like i think there is something i find really uncomfortable about the idea that we can only see our own queerness reflected in these like fairly plastic you know approved queer characters you know, such as they are in big movies. Whereas, you know, what queer people have done through history is they find their their stories reflected in characters, regardless of the sexuality of the character on the page, because we they had to, right? And I think I just think we still have to. I don't think that has changed all that much. Definitely more queer people are able to tell their stories now, and there are more explicit queer characters. You know, especially when you go into independent cinema and you know, the less money is riding on a project, the more likely you are to see your story reflected. But, you know, if you're going to engage with big Hollywood stuff, I would just advise for you to do that with the maximum amount of cynicism. Like, don't let them play you. Don't let them make money off you buying a superhero who is designed to be the one that your people buy. Like, just, ah, no, I can't, I can't be doing with that. When, like, a superhero movie includes a trans character, it's going to be someone who's there for, like, two seconds. Yeah. And has, like, no meaningful role. Whereas, like, I understand why people are far more engaged with Gwen as an allegorical character. I mean, one of the other critiques of this, as you said, is as soon as you start getting, like, really invested in these characters, it's a character who's owned by a corporation. And also, like, I saw a trans comics creator on Twitter getting really frustrated around this conversation because she was just like... You do understand that Gwen Stacy was created by a sexual harasser who preyed on all these women in the comics community, which is the case for quite a few comics characters because there's a lot of toxic Mm. men in that community. There's just this like complicating factor whenever you're engaging with corporate pop culture. Yeah. 
And there's no good answer to it. Like, it's just like your mileage may vary. And I think just the psychological trick is like, don't get too sucked into the idea of Disney or Sony doing you a favor by like giving some kind of quote unquote representation that you might very well find much more satisfying in a weirder, messier piece of art by someone who doesn't have millions of dollars. Yeah, I think Spider-Man is a particularly big risk in that sense because Spider-Man is designed to be an everyman. So, you know, most of us, I think, who came across Spider-Man probably did so as children, probably as nerdy teenagers in school. And so we read this story about this other nerdy teenager who has a hard life. And there's this power fantasy that, like, you know, he is also secretly, like, this super strong, uh, heroic character. And, like, I think that's what brings people to Spider-Man. So there is this desire to be like, you know, I really like the idea that Spider-Man is bisexual. Because I'm bisexual and I, when I read Spider-Man comics, I am relating to him. Spider-Man's definitely bisexual. Oh, yeah. Like- <laughs> So that's the thing. So if you're reading it, this is the thing, right? Like every trans person I've met, like all of my trans friends, the fact that they are trans is not in like the top five most important parts of their identity in terms of like how they relate to other characters. It's more important whether they are introverted or extroverted, whether they're nerdy, whether they're a deadpan nihilist in their aesthetic, like what how they dress. Like their gender is not super important. It's been made important by politics and by rights be, you know the the fight for their rights to be removed and what have you but in terms of like which characters you you relate to of course you relate to Gwen Stacy because she is a well drawn character she is very well performed i think the voice acting is phenomenal the art style is telling a lot of the story of what she's like you know we can tell what her aesthetic is because we can see the aesthetic of her world so of course she is going to be a much more relatable character than if we ever end up getting, like, an official trans TM superhero. You know, that should happen. Like, there should be explicit trans superheroes. But as a as a superhero fan, everyone's trans. Just pick the ones you relate to and go, yeah, that person's trans. Because of course they are. It's a story. It's a communication. You are part of the story by listening to the story and filtering it through your own experience. That is part of the process. You know, that's the final word on canons as far as I'm concerned. It's like the idea that we should respect entirely what the creators intended. Like, that's the thing. Like, so much of this conversation is, whoa, did they secretly intend her to be trans? Well, I hope so. But also, it doesn't matter. If she's trans to you, then she's trans. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. My other point of interest in terms of the film's politics, it's really my main criticism as well. We are now getting into quite a long podcast zone here, but I'm like, I have more thoughts. I am actually working on an article about this at the moment, which will presumably be published by the time the podcast's out. But it's about the film's relationship with law enforcement. And it's something I'm kind of like conscious about as like a white critic writing about this movie franchise that's like about a black teenager and like his relationship to crime and policing. It was definitely something I saw black comics fans talking about in the first movie and it's definitely something which is aged poorly I think and they kind of doubled down on it which is that these films like do act as propaganda in a very familiar way for superhero comics where obviously the entire genre is founded on the concept of fighting crime and the way Miles is framed both in these two movies and in the comics is that he is kind of caught between two male role models, his father and his uncle. His father is a police officer who is, as I said earlier, named after a Confederate president. (laughs) And his uncle 
is a criminal who is like the negative influence. And to mention a spoiler about the end of this movie now, toward the end, we see an alternate universe where Miles' father died, leaving him with only his uncle as the role model. And without his father, he turns to a life of crime. So his only influence is his mother, who is wonderful. So like, without this like positive law-abiding paternal figure... He's like, I'm going to be a criminal now. And obviously we only like see this character for like a little bit, so we don't get any more complexity to that. But the fact that Miles's origin story in the comics is based around, in the comics, I think his father also like used to be a criminal and then became a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent or something. It's a bit more kind of complicated, but that has definitely been criticized a lot. And there is also this kind of long running trope in superhero comics of like black characters becoming part of law enforcement. That is something that happened with Luke Cage and Sam Wilson. Like recently they made Luke Cage into a police commissioner and people were just like, literally, why would you do that with Luke Mm. Cage of all characters, you know? And with this, the two teens who are the protagonists of this story, both of them are heavily tied up in their relationship with their fathers, both of whom are police officers. And while Gwen's father is portrayed in a much more antagonistic light, like he's much more stressful figure for her because like he is potentially dangerous to her, the scene where they reunite and she effectively comes out to him, she like makes this really direct comment about, oh, well, I've always been like proud of you because I know that other people don't deserve to wear the uniform and you do. And like, essentially, I know that you're a good cop. So it's this like, very contemporary trope in copaganda media where like they tacitly acknowledge the concept of there being corrupt cops or like police brutality but the foreground is the quote-unquote good cop who is unsullied by that corruption and in this case she literally compares her spider-man mask to his badge so she is like aligning herself directly with law enforcement and all the explicit depictions of like police in these movies are like basically positive like they're rushing to the scene of the emergency to help people even that is propaganda because in reality the nypd is not rushing to the scene of the crime to help people the two things they're doing as far as i can tell are loitering around in large groups on the subway on their phones and like brutalizing people those are like the two (laughs) claims to fame of the nypd i guess the third one would be like sucking the budget out of public schools and libraries in new york you know (laughs) like those are those are the three like tenets of the nypd i listened to a podcast recently i can't remember which one this is but it was talking about the rate of solving murders already low but getting lower It's dropped incredibly drastically, and and I'll forget the specific figures, but it was something like, in the 60s, 90% of murders were solved, and now it's like, I don't know, like 40% or something. It's fallen drastically. But if you ask people, they would assume the rate of solving murders has gone up, because we have so many more techniques for, you know, CSI techniques, and sort of, we have DNA and stuff. It's like, well, the police can, like, you know, track your blood by satellite and, like, run you over with a tank, and it's like, you know, as with all propaganda media... It's just creating this fantasy where the police are this really positive force. They include stuff in the movie like Miles wears like a Black Lives Matter pin, but that's not really something that's like in your face in the same way as this entire narrative is. Yeah. At the same time, there's this interesting clash with the deeper subtext of the story with him and the Spider Society, because basically... His arc in this movie is like, at first, he really wants to join the Spider Society because he feels like excluded in his own world. He wants to hang out with Gwen, first and foremost. And he also wants to feel like he's helping and like he's part of a team. Genuinely feels like intentional commentary on why you would want to join the police force. Like, they want to help. They want to be part of this group. 
But what we see with the spider society is like as a function of joining this group, all of these characters who started out as like independent vigilantes have been suckered into what is essentially a fascist organization because their entire purpose is to rigidly maintain what they see as essential canon. And that means leaving certain people to die for the good of society. And there's different ways of looking at this. Cause like, I think that it is like genuinely commenting on the idea of like, Miles is the good guy and he is in opposition to this law enforcement agency, which is bad, which is kind of commenting on the way that the MCU and other franchises and the comics take this character who should essentially be friendly neighborhood Spider-Man and repeatedly insert him into these bigger conglomerates of like authority figures in a way that kind of sucks and like removes a lot of the stuff that's interesting by that character. But at the same time, the world building of the movie endorses the idea that this policing has to happen because we literally see a universe starting to dissolve into nothingness because someone interrupted the canon timeline. So it's a very imperfect piece of allegorical storytelling. And even though I find that interesting, the politics of these movies are so messy that like, I think all the problematic cop stuff kind of outweighs it because it's such more, it's so more obvious to just be like, we love good cop Jefferson Davis. And it's like, you had the option of retelling Miles' story in a way that didn't involve the NYPD in such a foregrounded role. Yeah, that's really true. It's frustrating that the film does such a good job having Miles defy the sort of metaphorical idea of the police, but we are consistently meeting real police people. And I wonder again if this is you know, obsession with canon getting in the way, because if you talk about really important beats in the Spider-Man story in the original comics, uh, the death of Gwen Stacy is one, but the death of Captain Stacy is another incredibly important sort of plot beat that everyone keeps returning to. The the idea that the death of a police captain close to Spider-Man is like, oh yeah, that happens all the time. The problem is... Does it happen all the time? Because as important as it is to comics fans, it doesn't happen in the Sam Raimi films. It doesn't happen in the Tom Holland films. Like, the only place where we see the death of Captain Stacy is, if I'm remembering correctly, Amazing Spider-Man 2 with Andrew Garfield. I mean, they could just say, like, a father figure. Exactly, yeah. But Spider-Man loses, like, a blood relative... And then later a sort of adoptive father, which that kind of does happen, right? Like, you know, he has that relationship to people like Norman Osborn and Otto Octavius in the Sam Raimi films. But but then they become villains and go off the rails. And this is literally just like what the new Flash movie is doing. Exactly. Because it's like the Flash decides to go back and save his mother and then like destroys the multiverse. It's like exactly the same thing, including having all these clashing bubble universes, which is of course something that comes from the comics. You know, it happened in the MCU already with like Kang and stuff. And it's just like, I'm tired (laughs) and I don't want to see any more clashing multiverses. I do quite like it still. Like I like I am less exhausted by it than you are. I really love time travel stories and I have a high threshold for repetitive storytelling too, I think. So the thing that I find annoying about it, I'm okay with the element of, well, look, all these other people lost their police captain friends. You're going to lose yours too. Whoa, can I avoid it? You know, I'm happy with that as a mechanic. The thing is, I do think it's a non-neutral storytelling decision to make it a police captain specifically that you lose there are other ways to sum up who captain stacy is to peter parker you know in the amazing spider-man comics of the 70s 
And I don't know, like, I can see the temptation as a writer that you go, wait a minute, Captain Stacy dies, Miles' dad is a police captain, let's join these dots. Like, that, you know, that can feel elegant. And maybe that is all it is. But oh, it, it definitely feels very, very pro-cop in a movie that, you know, in, in other places it feels anti-cop. But again, it's 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 not against cops. It's only against the the concept of fascists. Indeed. On that note, it is almost time to wrap up. But as is often the case, I've forgotten to talk about the music oh, until the end of the yeah. podcast. The music's amazing in this. Yeah, I should have talked about it more when we were talking about the animation. But like... The score and the soundtrack choices in this are obviously absolutely amazing. Once again, an area in which this is vastly superior to the agonizingly dull music we see in the MCU. But um, the composer is Daniel Pemberton and the producer is Metro Boomin. And there's like this combination of score and loads of fun little like pop, hip hop bits of soundtrack. I love it. It's such an effective score. I hope it wins an Oscar. Obviously, we shouldn't be judging everything by awards, but like, I hope it wins an Oscar. <laughs> and it's this like incredible work of multi-genre composition. Like I mentioned earlier, the thing with Renaissance Vulture having this opera medieval glitch music, but there's also, it's one of these situations where like each of the main characters has their own theme, which is pretty common, but it's also fairly rare to see such a wide range of like musical styles in the same movie. Yeah, there's this great quote from Daniel Pemberton, the composer, where he describes it as postmodern film music. Film music that comes through a filter of the last hundred years of culture in the same way the artwork has. If you look at traditional quote-unquote film music, those traditionals are grand classical pieces. I've grown up surrounded by hip-hop, techno, rock, classical, jazz, experimental music, avant-garde music, and all those influences in the score. It just feels incredibly modern and vibrant. We also get this real signal of what like Miles's personal taste in music is. You hear a lot of this kind of dreamy like Gen Z pop hip hop there's like a track by James Blake and Metro there's like a lot of trap beats going on and then Gwen has her own style which is this there's bits of that dreaminess as well but also she's like a drummer so there's all this like drumming that's really furious and it's kind of symbolizing her mental state so it's like oh it's so good Spider-Man 2099 has this kind of cyberpunk thing going on it's excellent. It's, it's so great. Just the fact that this film opens with this incredibly heart-pounding drumming is brilliant. What a great way to start a film. And on that note, I think this podcast is over. I don't think we need to discuss the fact that this movie is a two-parter. There has been discourse around people being like, oh no, it feels unfinished because it's a two-parter. And like, I didn't know because there wasn't part one in the title. And it's like, I kind of didn't know because there wasn't part one in the title. But when the film end- ended and it was clearly going to be part two and part two, I was like, sure, sometimes that's how a story yeah, is. Yeah, There's a thing about like, whether you got a complete story, to my mind, is not whether the plot was finished. I think this is a complete film. I mean, I have addressed a couple of times in this podcast that there are certain questions I have that I hope are answered positively in the next film. You know, I have concerns about the portrayal of of canons, but if something happened and the next one was to be cancelled and this was the only film we ever had, it's still a complete story. It's got its own concerns. It's got its own things to say. Like, it's fine. Indeed. So yeah, I think that is um, us for this week. We'll be back soon with an episode Steph and I have already recorded on The Exorcist, uh, which I delayed in order to release this one because it's more timely. 
As always, you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com where the show notes are. On Patreon at Overinvested Podcast, Morgan and I have very recently posted a new episode where we talk about books we've read recently, various book reviews and recommendations, a very interesting list there. And as soon as possible, we are also recording an episode all about succession, which ended a couple of weeks ago. So we have a lot of thoughts on succession, the premier prestige drama of our era. And I'll have another episode with other co-host Claire coming up soon. That will be on The Piano Teacher um, from 2001, this kind of erotic romantic thriller. So I'm excited to record that. And also, as always, obviously, you can find us on Twitter at OverinvestedPod and Tumblr OverinvestedPodcast. Me at HelloTaylor on Letterboxd and Hello underscore Taylor on Twitter as Stefan. I am Stalin on Twitter. That's S-T-A-L-U-N. Awesome. All right. So we will see you soon in the next one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.